As you're uh, being seated, we're going to continue. I've got, this is my last week to have a chance to uh, speak with you all uh, today. And so, once again, I say thank you to you and Pastor David for allowing me to, to, to come and share. Um, I, I, I've known many of you throughout the years. I was your pastor for a short time as an interim for some of you that are here. And so as we gather today, um, I feel like I'm speaking to, to family and, and, and friends, and I'm, I'm grateful and I'm thankful for that. So, um, so th- once again, thank you for allowing me to be here. Uh, we've been focusing upon Micah chapter uh, 6, verse, verse 8. Now, can I let you in on a little bit of pastor speak here? Um, when, when, when pastors go somewhere else, you know what we often get to do? Is we often get to pull out what we think is our best sermons. Because <laughs> why, why spend the work having to do something new? But I told Pastor David, I was like, you know, I've done that a lot. And uh, I've had a chance to go speak different places, and I've done that. But I said, I, when I come, I want to get into to the Word and do something new. And so this has all been new material for me, and I've really enjoyed the opportunity to, to share. And so, uh, and it's something that I, I've become passionate about. Micah chapter 6, 8 is that verse that gives us the basics of what we're supposed to be doing. What does the Lord require of you, Micah says? Well, it's pretty simple. We're supposed to be people who look at justice and we act justly. There's not a whole lot of justice in our world. But we have to combine that with loving mercy. Not just be merciful because we have to, but loving mercy. And then today, as we talk, we're going to talk about what's it mean for us to walk humbly with our God. That's what the Lord requires. Uh, I was thinking about this uh, verse uh, 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 probably about a week or two ago, and I ran into uh, a, a person now, is my friend, his name's Stacy. Uh, for those of you who don't know, you know, I, 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 I pastored a, few, a couple different churches uh, in this area over the last 25 years, and so um, I've resigned a, a position in, in Bristow, and so now I've said I've got to do something to put some food on the table, so I pick up those crazy scooters that you see all over town. Uh, maybe not here in Broken Arrow. Broken Arrow won't let us have them. Um, but in Tulsa, if you go downtown Tulsa or you go to the gathering place or you go to those places, they, they have these electric scooters that people ride all around. A lot of it's for fun. But for some folks, it's become their prime uh, source of transportation. And so I go out every night and I pick up these scooters and then I get up in the morning. I go drop them off. I've been up since 4.30 out dropping scooters off in downtown Tulsa. And... Um, I run into this man named Stacy uh, through the last two or three years that I've been doing this. The first time I saw Stacy, he was walking down the street. He's a big, probably six foot six, just thick, imposing man, loud, booming voice, and he was yelling something. I have no idea what he was yelling. He was just yelling as he was w- walking down the street. And, and, and Stacy has one of those faces that he's mean mugging when he's not even trying to mean mug. <laughs> when it comes right down to it. And so he's so here's this guy who's mean mugging all the time, plus he's yelling, and I'm thinking, okay, Stacy, I need to make sure I stay away from this guy. I didn't know his name, Stacy, at the time. I need to stay away from him because, you know, there are lots downtown. Uh, we've got lots of folks who are homeless. There's lots of mental issues uh, that, that people struggle with. Um, 
And so time goes on, I still see Stacy around, and then one day I'm picking up a scooter right in front of Hertz Donut. I can still see it uh, taking place. And so I'm picking up the scooter, and then all of a sudden I hear the booming voice right behind me. And he says to me, get it off. I'm like, what are you talking about, Stacy? Get it off. And he said, the alligators. I got alligators on my back. Will you get them off? And I'm like, no, you don't have any alligators on your back. It's, it's fine. And I'm sitting here thinking, I've got to run to the next scooter, and I'm not sure I want to have this conversation. And uh, he keeps on going, no, man, you got to get the alligators off. So finally I go and I start to brush his back. I was like, okay, they're all gone. He's like, oh, thank you, man, for getting the alligators off. So he goes into Hertz Donuts. I leave and go on my way thinking, man, that was, that was weird when it came right down to it. Um, time goes on. I, still, I, I start to say hi to him. He starts says hi back to me. Uh, calls me Scooter Man. And then one day, probably just about three or four months ago, I'm downtown again. He's across the street. I hear him talking to somebody because he's got this loud, booming voice. And all of a sudden, he yells, hey, Eric Clapton! <laughs> now, I've been told that I have a resemblance to Eric Clapton. In fact, that... Uh, my, my, my trail name had to do with Eric Clapton when I was out doing the Appalachian Trail with my wife, and so I thought, I bet he's talking about me. <laughs> and then the next thing that comes out of Stacy's mouth is him singing Layla, which is one of Clapton's songs. And so he comes over to me and, and starts talking about, oh, Eric Clapton, it's so good to have you here in Tulsa. And, and uh, so I, I start to talk to him more. I, I eventually find out, I, he, he knows a little bit about me, I start to ask him questions about him, and another time I, I sat and talked to him a little bit about his family. He's had a hard, hard family life, and he take, he's like, I take full responsibility. It was me. I totally messed it up. And so here's this homeless man who knows that he's got issues, and he knows that he's messed a whole bunch of things up, but yet he's still willing to talk to a guy like me, and I'm willing to talk to a guy like him. Uh, every so often, one of the things I've been doing this summer is uh, I'll, I'll take a, a cooler of uh, water and throw a bunch of ice in there and that sort of thing so I can give out to folks. And so every time I see Stacy, I'll give him a, a, a bottle of water because uh, it's tough down on the streets when you don't have something to drink. And then kind of to top it all off, it was about two weeks ago or so, um, I was down in the arts district doing the scooter thing, and Stacy, uh, and he yells at me, Eric Clapton, all the time. He's like, hey, Clapton! And he had, uh, he had a bunch of buddies. Usually he's by himself, so it's kind of weird, but he had a bunch of, uh, of his homeless buddies that, that were with him, and he comes up and he puts his arm around me. And he's like, I want everybody to know this is Eric Clapton. Eric Clapton's good for Tulsa. <laughs> and Eric Clapton's good for us. And then he looks and takes his big finger, imposing finger, and starts to point out at each one of those guys and gals that were there. And he says, I'm here to tell you nobody messes with Eric Clapton. <laughs> and you know what? I, 
I felt like I was, you know, 10 feet tall. Because here is this guy. Now, he's providing me protection. Yes, that's cool. <laughs> but more importantly, here is this guy who's in essence saying, you're my friend. I, I, I've seen what you do. I, 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 I want to come up and have conversations with you, and I want to have conversations with him. I, I, I want to befriend you, and I want to follow you in many ways. We've had a couple of conversations that have turned to the things of God. Not a ton, but a few. I'm hoping there will be more in the future, too. But he's willing to come and not only be my friend, but in some ways begin to follow some of the things that I do. And I'm willing to come and be his friend, too. And so as we think today, we're going to talk about what's it mean to follow? What's it mean to, to come alongside of one and follow? And particularly, what's it mean for us to do that with God himself? If you're going to follow, that means you have to have trust. You know, there was a time when I first saw Stacy, I thought, I'm never going to hang out with this guy because <laughs> I don't trust him. Now, my trust has grown. I, I, you know, I still have you know, eyes and, and want to be able to see, but my trust has grown with him. And I know his trust has grown with me. And so if you are going to be somebody who follows after another, and particularly follows after the Lord, there is this issue of trust. It comes down to trust. Do you trust Jesus? Is really what we're going to be looking at today. And so as we do so, we're going to look at kind of a, you're going to, we're going to make a couple weird transitions here today. But the first transition we're going to look at is, well, well how did Jewish boys come to follow the Lord? How, how did Jewish boys come to, to follow even the, 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 the Lord that they find in the scriptures? And so as we think about this, um, there was a very particular educational system that began to uh, spring up in the time period of the Old Testament and obviously continued it even into the days of Jesus. And the way that children were educated at that particular time is when they hit about the age of five years old, the schooling became a little bit more formalized. Now, they didn't go off to a school building like, you know, we do, but there became much more of a formalized setting for learning how do I follow the things of God. The, the name for that is called Beth Sefer. And in Beth Sefer, that's kind of like grade school. It's, it was for about ages 5 through, you might say, 11 or so. You had people who were entering into this, this kind of schooling where they got to know the scriptures. Now, for this part of Beth Sefer, this was actually boys and girls, not together, but boys and girls did have schooling at that time. The girls... The schooling that they had was to take the scriptures and begin to read them and begin to hear them being told to them and they began to do things like memorize them. You know how we sometimes would go and memorize verses? You know, I remember one time I memorized the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. It took me a long time. I eventually got it though. You know what these 5 through 11-year-old girls did? They memorized psalms. 
Proverbs, Deuteronomy, and Leviticus. Those four books they took to heart and memorized. And the reason those four books, because they often talk about how the family is ordered and, and how you're supposed to do things in the home. And so that was the focus of what girls did during that time. Memorized. Now they lived in an oral culture, so it came easier to them. But still, the boys, who were five through 11, they spent their time getting to know the word and they began to read and learn and memorize the Torah. The Torah consists of the first five books that we see in the uh, Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so they would learn those stories, begin to, to hear the things of God, and begin to memorize all of those words. Now, once you hit 11 years old, that was kind of the cutoff point. There was going to be a few that moved on, but most would go back and the girls would go and they'd start to work in the home and do, do the things that women were only allowed to do at that particular time. And the boys would then go apply the family trade. It might be, you know, being a fisherman or, you know, it might be being a carpenter. And so most of them would go and learn the trade. They had some schooling. They knew the Torah really well, or they knew these other books. And so they began to do their thing in those settings. But those who were the best, they were able to continue their schooling. And so they went, not, they went from what was called Beth Sefer into Beth Hamidrash. And in Beth Hamidrash, what would take place is the boys would continue to learn and study because their focus now was one day they hope to attach themselves to a rabbi and perhaps one day beyond that they would be able to be a rabbi rabbi means teacher themselves and so part of their schooling at that particular time was to go on and to study the rest of the old testament and memorize it I mean, can, can you imagine? We're talking about, when we take the Bible, we're talking about that much of the Bible that they are learning and they are memorizing and they're learning about the things of God. And so they would go through that. And then, that went up to probably about the age of uh, 14 or 15. At that point then came the real jewel of schooling it was called the Talmudim. And the Talmudim were not only the best, but they were the best of the best. And the best of the best would then go, and they would once again engage in a whole bunch of study. They would talk about the Hebrew scriptures. They would know the Bible back and forth. And then at that time, every rabbi had kind of a different interpretation of some of the scriptures. And so you would follow particular rabbis. You, you might think about them in terms of, say, for us in the church today, different denominations might have different kinds of theologies. And so you would learn about the different, what the different rabbis thought. That was, uh, part of that was a process called midrash. And they would memorize all of that. 
And it all then came down to a really, really important time when they would study these different rabbis and they would study these different teachers. And then they would choose the rabbi with whom they identified the most. And they would come to him and say, may I follow you. Again, these are the best of the best. But the rabbis couldn't take everybody. And so they would look at what was considered the best of the best and then figure out which ones they wanted from that group to follow them and become their Talmudim, or another word for that is disciples. All rabbis had disciples. And so they would look upon these and then they would begin to make choices. It would probably be no, 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 yes, you can be one of my disciples. These boys had proven themselves in this whole rabbinical system. And now, finally, those who were the best of the best of the best were able to follow their rabbi. Now, that's the Jewish system, how it works. And some of you are sitting here thinking, how does that apply to Jesus? He had disciples? Did they deal? No, Jesus is always thinking outside the box. Now, people considered Jesus a rabbi. In fact, there were the people who listened to Jesus teach, and they thought, we don't hear people teaching like this. This one teaches like he's got great authority. And Jesus then says, well, I'm going to have some disciples. I'm going to participate in a way in this system, but I'm going to flip it on its head in a couple of different ways. I told you before that the boys would try and choose their rabbi that they wanted to go to and say, may I follow you. How did Jesus do it? I want you to follow me. I mean, th think about that. I, I, it's, it, that's a big difference. Like, you know, the rabbis, just, other rabbis are just cutting this, sitting there saying, well, you come to me, I'll kind of make some decisions, I'll go back and forth, but not Jesus. Jesus says, no, I'm going to come to you because I think you're special and I want you to become my disciple. Now, we all know, if you've been around the church very long, that these who became disciples, nobody in that culture would have considered them the best of the best of the best. In, in fact, when you think about people, let's, let's pick the first ones that he chose to follow after him. Anybody remember, if you've been in the church long or heard this story before, anybody remember what they were doing when Jesus said, I want you to follow me? They were fishermen, which already tells you they had, uh, along with most people, so this is probably way too harsh, but they had flunked out of these schools. I mean, they, they'd gone on to do the, the family business. See, they, they weren't like these scholarly types of people. But it's to them. It's to Peter and Andrew. Fishermen, come, drop your nets and follow me. It's to James and John. Fishermen, come and follow me. And then he would begin to do that with different kinds of people. To a Matthew, the tax collector, he chose him to come and follow. And, and you know, the, to, to Thomas, who later we call it Doubting Thomas, he told him to, to follow. And we could go through the 12 different disciples, choosing them all, saying, I want you to come follow me. And particularly for those first ones, 
he made it very clear, and I'm going to make you fishers, not a fish, but fishers of men. And so Jesus, again, begins to turn things on its head. He, he not only does that in terms of choosing them, but obviously he does it in terms of their abilities. You know, I don't know if other rabbis kind of watched this or saw this. Certainly they heard about this. And they thought, what kind of person chooses fishermen? I mean, we choose the best of the best of the best. Not people like that. Because so often the rabbis were attempting to decide, who do I really think can take my message and take it into the next generation. Jesus thought the same way, but he wasn't concerned about how good they were. He just wanted them to follow because he knew how good his father was. And so as we begin to look at what Jesus is doing, as he begins to gather these probably mostly teenage boys around him, we think of these you know, uh, uh, people who are following Jesus, and we, we might look at, you know, some of the, like the picture of the last, or the painting of the Last Supper, and we see these folks, and they look like, you know, 30-year-old men. They probably weren't 30-year-old men. They were probably, you know, 16, 17, 18-year-old boys at the time that Jesus is gathering them around him. And he is gathering them for a purpose. Because like the other rabbis, he too wants them to be able to take his message into the world after he is done. Now, these disciples, they had to learn to trust Jesus. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. I can imagine that, you know, when, when uh, uh, Peter and Andrew, or James and John, uh, we, we know, especially with James and John, it refers to this, that, that, that their parents must have been just like glowing with pride. Yeah, the, the sense that our boys got chosen to be a follower, a disciple of a rabbi? Our kids? I mean, they might be great fishermen, but they're not that type of person. But you know what? This is a really high esteemed place in our society. And so they must have had this, this, this great sense of these are our boys, but the boys had to probably recognize, I'm really going to have to trust this Jesus because I might not think I'm really the best of the best of the best. But in time, that's exactly what they do. They learn to trust Jesus. They learn to trust as they walk with him along the roadways. They learn to trust with him as they get into all different kinds of difficult situations. They learn to trust him, and they learn to want to become like him. In the end, that's what a disciple's called to do. You're called to become like the one you are following. If you wonder what a disciple does, that's it in a nutshell. You become like the one you are following. That's why we have a particular story that, you know, is getting told. If you remember, we have the story of Peter in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 14. And if you have your Bibles, you can look there. I'm just going to tell the story and and, uh, refer to a verse or two from it. But Jesus has been hanging back, and he sends the disciples in a boat to go across the Sea of Galilee to meet him on the other side. And so they figure, well, he's just going to walk around the other side or maybe get another boat, we don't know. But uh, Jesus decides not to do that. It's 
night, and he decides he's going to walk across the water. And so the disciples are there, and they start to see, they're like, hey, there's somebody walking across the water. Who, what is this? Who is this? Is it a ghost? And they recognize it's Jesus. And then probably the most boisterous disciple, the one uh, who you know, probably has, in many ways, the least self-control, but in many ways has also this heart that desires to be like Jesus, begins to think, I want to do what Jesus does. And so he's walking on the water. Peter wants to walk on water like Jesus, and he gets out of the boat. And he begins to walk towards him. Jesus actually even tells him to come to him. And so as Peter then begins to walk on the water, and if you grew up in Sunday school or those kinds of things, you, you, you might have this, 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 this concept that, you know, Peter's walking and saying, this is pretty cool. And then all of a sudden, it begins to change. He begins to fall because the scripture tells us that he doubts. When he begins to fall, it's Jesus there who grabs him and raises him up. And these are the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 14, verse 34. You who have so little faith, why did you doubt? I want you to roll that over in your mind. You who have so little faith, why did you doubt? You know, Jesus has been one who's brought these, these, these boys, young men around him. They've learned to be like him. They've learned to follow after him. And he's allowed them to start to really trust him. That's why Peter got out of the boat, because he trusted Jesus. Now, I have a question for you. I want you to think about this as you're rolling Jesus' words over in your mind. Was it at that moment that Peter saw all that was going on around him that he stopped trusting Jesus? Is that what Jesus is referring to, to, to uh, Peter when he says, well, why did you doubt? Is he saying, why did you doubt me? I, I, I've been good. I, I, I've come through every single time. Peter, why did you doubt me? I don't think that's what Jesus was referring to. There's, there's no, why did you doubt me? It's just, why did you doubt? Peter trusted Jesus, and I think when he was there walking upon the water, he's trusting Jesus too. But Peter doubted. So if he doesn't doubt Jesus, who does he doubt? He doubts Peter. I mean, Jesus could do all these things. I, I've trusted Jesus through thick and thin. I've got out and I started to walk, and this is pretty amazing. But I believe that as Jesus is sitting here speaking, there's a sense that he's recognizing Peter begins to doubt whether he can really follow or not. Can I really become like my master, my rabbi? Or maybe I don't have what it takes. 
as a pastor, I've seen that happen to so many folks. They might come in, there might be a euphoria, they might have this this awesome sense of relationship that they have with the Lord, but then they they might fall into a, a sin or they might begin to reflect back upon their past and they start to think, I don't think I can do this anymore. And I've seen way too many people, sadly, fall by the wayside, not because they somehow lost faith in God, they lost faith in their ability to follow. And other things became more important to them. I think Peter is looking at this particular situation. And he needs Jesus to lift him up. Because he's not sure that he can really follow. It's it's amazing that as we think about this Peter... It's also this Jesus that would come to Peter later on and tell him, Peter, I've got faith in you. In many ways, I trust you. For I'm going to, before he was was called Simon, but he changes his name and he says, and Peter, that means rock, upon you, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. I trust you and these others to take my message, to take my good news, to take my gospel and spread it to other people. Now, you have to do that in the power of the Holy Spirit. You have to do that as you have learned my teachings. You have to do it as you continue to follow me, but there has to be a sense that you who are disciples believe that what God asked me to do, I can do. It takes his help, it takes his spirit, but I can follow and I will not shirk back. Peter had a time when he shirked back once again towards the end of uh, Jesus' life after he is there killed or getting ready to... uh, go to the cross where he denies Jesus three times. Jesus once again has to come to Peter after the resurrection and encourage him three times saying, no, Peter. I know in essence Jesus is saying, I know you denied me. But Peter, do you really love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter's able to say, Jesus has him do it three times because Peter had failed. And in, Jesus, and in essence, Jesus is saying, get up and do it again. I don't know where you are as a disciple today. Some of you may look and say, well, yeah, I was a pretty good disciple in terms of being a follower at one point, but then I began to fall back. Maybe I doubted myself, or maybe I just allowed other things to 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 get in the way. Maybe I got consumed with my job or I got consumed with my kids' sports or whatever else it might be. Jesus says to you, you can do this. You, You can get up once again and become my disciple. You might not have all the perfect background. You might not have taken all the Bible classes. You might not have grown up even in the life of the church. But Jesus says, I can still use you. Will you step forward?
and be a disciple. Well, one of the problems in the life of the church is we think that if we just show up on Sunday morning, that that's what mean, being a disciple is all about. Like, I'm good with God because I showed up to church on Sundays. It takes so much more. Just showing up to church doesn't trans, help to transform you into the likeness of Jesus. It's when you walk with him, not only on Sundays, but on Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and throughout the week. It's when you begin to, to get into the word. It's amazing that these, these unskilled people called Jesus' disciples ended up being some of the best writers of the word. I mean, they, 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 they grew into the position, so to speak. You can do that too. But it takes some effort. And sitting on your behind in church thinking that's good enough, I'm here to tell you it's not. He's got so much more in store. But you have to walk humbly with your God. Last thing I want to share as we close today. There was a saying, we don't know the extent of how it was utilized, but it's come to be known as a, a, a blessing that was given to disciples. As you follow your disciple, as you walk humbly with him, it's, you're, you're, you're walking along dusty pathways. You're, 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 you're walking uh, for mile after mile after mile. And in the midst of it, people got dirty at that time. You're going to get dirty from something. And so the blessing that would be given to disciples would be this. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. You know, you're not going to get covered in the dust of your rabbi if you're a long distance back. You only get covered in the dust of your rabbi if you're walking right there with him. And so my encouragement to you is to say, what's it going to take for me in my relationship with God to truly walk with him? Does that mean I've really got to open up my Bible each and every day when I've just kind of let it sit on the table? Probably. Does it mean I have to spend some time conversing with him? We call that prayer. Yes. Does that mean I need to, to gather around other folks and, and be able to be a, a, a source of community with them? Yes. Does that mean I have to seek justice in my world? Yes. Does it mean I have to forgive those who've hurt me? Does it mean I have to desire to love mercy? Yes. The call of Jesus is that you become like him. How are you doing on that today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, we come. And God, we know that your call to us is that we go and not only be disciples, but make disciples too. 
And so, God, as we often we begin to think about others, and it's easy to think about others, but help us right now, Lord, to think about ourselves. I, I, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak, that you would get down into the depths of our heart, maybe even see some of that sin that we need to confess to you that's stopping us from being the kind of disciple that we should be. And so, God, on this day, help us to take a hard look at where we are as we walk with you. And, Lord, if any of us are here today and we recognize we don't look a whole lot like you, Jesus, may this be a day when we start to make some commitments, where we are lifted up by you and then we are able to make those commitments that we want to follow after you. We want to become like our rabbi, Jesus. And so, Father, as we prepare to sing, would you speak into the hearts and minds of people here? In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.